let's go on and talk about submission. Now, this would be really the the final vow, membership vow. We've already kind of waded into this when we have talked about church government, elders and deacons and um, and the roles that they have. Uh, you all, if you join this church, will be taking vows to submit to the government and discipline of the church and to promise to study its purity and peace. So I want us in this final section to just talk a little bit about what that looks like. Um, Presbyterianism has always stressed that leadership in a local church is declarative and ministerial, not legislative and authoritarian. It is declarative and ministerial. The only authority we have is God's word. That's it. You are not called to submit to the government of the church in whatsoever we may want to tell you. We cannot tell you, you took vows here, and therefore you must be part of a community group when we get those off the ground. Do we want everybody to be part of a community group? Yes. Do we think as elders that that would be for the best growth of the church? I do think that that's a very helpful and in some way necessary thing. But God has not commanded us to have community groups. He has commanded us to gather together for Lord's Day worship. So we can tell you that you must be in Lord's Day worship unless for some reason you are providentially hindered, you're sick, you're traveling, there's a season of life that, that for whatever reason is keeping you from being able to be here caring for an aged parent perhaps or whatever it may be, there are legitimate reasons. But in so much as there are not legitimate reasons to neglect the assembly, we do have the authority to declare that you are to be in the assembly. But as I've just noted, we cannot require you to serve in the nursery. There are some churches that say every member has to serve in the nursery. I, in good conscience, cannot say you must, even though we need more help in the nursery. Let that be noted. Nevertheless, and my wife and I were talking about this recently, there's a line that churches can cross where they say, because you're in covenant with this church, therefore you must do this and this and this and this. We, the only authority we have is what God has revealed in his word, and we declare that revelation. That's where the authority comes from, is scripture. So if, if someone was on the brink of divorce, and there were not biblical grounds for that, the elders of this church have every right under the authority of King Jesus to say, you cannot divorce your spouse. That's declarative. If there's, if there's immorality, if there's adultery or abandonment, then we, we can declare you have a right to dis- divorce your spouse. We may not encourage that, but the only thing we can do is declare what God has revealed in his word. Nothing else. So that's a very strong and important thing when we talk about you taking a vow to submit to the government of the church. Um, We cannot tell you where you need to send your children to go to school. We can tell you that God requires you to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
We cannot tell you you must homeschool. We cannot tell you you must send them to a Christian school. We cannot tell you you absolutely are forbidden from sending them to public school. We can tell you about the dangers that we perceive in public schooling. We can tell you about the weaknesses of other forms of education, homeschooling or Christian schooling. But the only thing we have authority to declare authoritatively is that you are to raise your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. So that would be a little case study on the educational level of raising children. Um, And we are ministerial. Our job is not to be lords over you. We are not lords of your conscience. We are merely servants of the blood-bought flock of Jesus. My job is to lead as a servant who pours himself out for the good of others. That's true of the elders. It's true of the deacons. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have any authority. The authority is invested in the office. It comes from Scripture, from God's authority in Scripture. But there's always that fine line between authority and authoritarianism. And as much as God gives me grace to shepherd this flock, we want to avoid authoritarianism at all costs. We do not get to legislate. It's not legislative. We don't get to make up laws. Uh, There is a book that an old writer wrote called What is Presbyterian Law? That's actually an oxymoron. There is no such thing as Presbyterian law. There is Presbyterian declaring of God's revelation and ministerial authority. But that's it. Let me, let me stop and ask questions on that point because that's something I don't want to just ramrod this morning. All right. Well, you guys are good. Let's go on. Amen. Let's get into the good stuff. No, I'm just playing. Now, I did note... Page 31, we're going to get into biblical discipline a little more. We've already touched on it fairly well already. Um, We have said that submission to the government and discipline of the church is a voluntary acknowledgement that you are under the authority of God's word, that you are under the, the, the oversight of those men that he has called into office, and one of the functions of that oversight, and it's, it's a mark of the whole church, it's a function of the whole church, is discipline. Now, I like to give the illustration because there are a lot of churches that hate the idea of church discipline, even though our Lord Jesus instituted it. But I like to say, if, if, if there's a young man in his late teens and he's running around committing immorality with women in the church. And we don't discipline him. What is the end result? There's a lot of right answers. I'll I'll give you one. The purity of the church is jeopardized. What else? The honor of Christ is wounded. The name of Christ is not honored if we allow those actions to go on. What else? His soul is in jeopardy. The souls of those that 
he has maybe, you know, preyed upon, if we're using just an extreme example here, that they are spiritually in jeopardy. Um, the evil one has a foothold. So when we talk about discipline in the life of the church, we want to note that there are several things that Christ has instituted discipline for. The first is for his glory and honor. This is his church. And it's to reflect his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his wisdom, his life in the lives of his people. You'll remember the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Who remembers that? They lie about selling the field. We talked about this last week in Sunday school. What happens to them? Yeah, why does God strike this couple dead for lying about giving the totality of a portion of money from land that was theirs when they were just holding back some? That, that seems severe. Why would God strike them dead? I think the simple answer is if that level of hypocrisy had been allowed to leaven that fledgling New Covenant church, you wouldn't have a church anymore. You see, it, wickedness spreads like leaven. That's the point of Ananias and Sapphira. It's not saying every time anybody lies, God's going to strike them dead. It does mean we deserve death for lying, but this was a very special phenomenon in the, in the formation of the New Covenant Church. And essentially, it's a principle of church discipline. Well, thankfully, God doesn't strike everybody dead every time they do something that could harm the church. The principle is God is committed to the purity of his church. He's committed to the holiness of his church. You remember when the Ark of the Covenant was being sent back to Israel from the Philistines, and it's on the cart, and it's shaky, and Uzzah reaches out to grab it, and God strikes him dead. Um, R.C. Sproul said the problem is Uzzah, or Uzzah, however you want to say that, Uzzah believed that his hands were cleaner than the dirt that the ark would have touched, when in reality his hands are filthier than the dirt. But the principle is God is so holy that he wants his church to reflect his holiness. That's why church discipline is so important. Now, let me say this also. Discipline is not a bad word. We all, everybody tends to, discipline. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines every son or daughter that he loves. It's a mark that God loves you because the writer says if, if he doesn't love you, then you're not his children and he doesn't care. So, so discipline is actually a mark that he loves you and it's actually a loving mark of the church and it's a loving practice in the church. It is supremely loving and I have had friends that have had to confront me on things in my life over the years. Said, hey, I love you. You know, I, I don't want to see this become something that's going to be harmful to you or others. That's actually a really loving and beautiful thing. That's, that's to Jonathan's point earlier, that's kind of the first step in the process of discipline, right? Our Lord Jesus in Matthew 18 says, if your brother, if you see your brother sinning a sin, if your brother sins against you, go to him, confess privately. If 
you receive him, you've received your brother if he repents. If he doesn't, you take two or three others. If he doesn't, you take it to the church. But the goal is for that discipline to, act, to exercise in loving relationship on that first step level, if possible, so that it never even ever goes to where someone has hardened their hearts and has to be censored by the church. Yes. It's, it's a great point. In fact, you know, I hesitate. We're, we're a very traditional church. You know that. We're, we're a buttoned-up church. We tend to be. I don't care what you wear on Sunday as long as it's modest, however you define that. But, um, I, you know, I like to put a suit and tie on. It's just something I've always, I like to dress above. That's me personally. The danger of that is you create an atmosphere, to Matt's point, where it's best face on, best foot out. When people are struggling, life is hard. We don't expect you to come in here putting on a face that everything's great. Um, you know, there should be a realness and a transparency in our relationships. But to Matt's point, provided that there is mutual accountability, that we're coming alongside each other, we're there to build each other up. I often think of, and, and I talked about weaponizing church discipline, with a lot of churches do, sadly, a lot of more serious-minded churches can do that. Um, but, but Paul in Galatians 6 says, um, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So we're acknowledging, I'm just as susceptible to every sin that you're susceptible to. I'm not up here, you're not down there. And I need to deal very gently, very patiently, very sympathetically with others who may sin differently than me, recognizing my own weaknesses spiritually. And that needs to be part of this conversation as well, that real discipline is to be carried out in love and in gentleness for the good of others. Now, I will say this. I, I mentioned this already. Every single person that I've ever pastored has taken this vow exuberantly until they cheat on their wife. And then magically they've forgotten they took this vow. And they hate us and they hate the process of discipline and they slander the church and they do irreparable damage. So I just want to put that out today. Again, when we take these, I take vows to be submissive. I am bound to a body of presbyters who are there to hold me accountable. If I'm living a sinful life, I am subject to the discipline of the church. We are collectively subject to the General Assembly. So, so this is not a, officers are here, congregants are down here. We're all called 
to be submissive to the discipline of the church. You all, if you join this church, just happen to be taking vows to submit to the government and discipline of this congregation. Um, I am not going to go through all of this. You'll notice at the bottom of page 31, there is an analogy between a parent's love for a child and responsibility for a child with the elder's love for the sheep and responsibility to the sheep. Uh, there have been many times, I will say this, that uh, there has been there have been members who are delinquent to their vows and just decide they don't want to come back to church. That's a pretty common one. A lot of times I'll go to someone like that and say, look, you took vows. I took vows. Help me help you help me keep your vows. <laughs> because the vows I took are to help the members keep their vows. And so there is a harmonious working together in that, that, that really it's beautiful when it happens, just like a, a parent with their child or some other analogy in loving accountability. Um, I am going to skip over the process and procedures. We've already kind of touched on that. Um, we have doctrinal standards in this church. I'm going to move through this very quick. Um, we have a constitution in the Presbyterian Church in America. Our constitution is the Westminster Confession of Faith together with the shorter and larger catechism. So if you want to know what doctrine I am called to proclaim, if you want to know what standard, we have, we have a very big doctrinal standard. And um, most churches have a very basic what we believe on their website. We have a really comprehensive and historic what we believe on our website. And, and so we want to be as transparent as we can about what we believe. Um, I am bound by my vows not to teach anything outside of the confessional standards that I have taken vows. This is not adding to the Bible. This is us saying this is what we believe the Bible teaches. And so you can know that if I am fulfilling my vows, I am being faithful to teach this. Now, you are not being called to adhere to everything in the Westminster Standards to be a member of this church. For instance, maybe you're still Baptistic in your convictions. Um, we do not make church membership any more difficult than getting into heaven. Church leadership has a whole next level of doctrinal standards, but what you are submitting to is you're saying, we understand that Church Creek Presbyterian is going to teach this. Covenantal baptism of our children, for instance. Doctrine of election, all of those things. You may not fully understand or fully be on board with those distinctives, but what you're saying by joining Church Creek is, you know what, I'm not going to cause problems. That's the best way I can put it. You're acknowledging the church's constitution, Westminster Standards, Book of Church Order, and what you're saying is, I'm not going to be divisive. I'm not going to go around and find all the other believers, Baptist people, and try to create a subculture that will become a church plant. We would ask you not to do that. That's a big, that's a big part of submitting to the government and discipline of the church. If someone felt like, I can't stay at Church Creek anymore because I'm just really Baptist, we understand. We will help the people. We don't want them to go. 
we will help them find a good church that adheres more to what they believe on that, that point. But just for y'all's context, we do have uh, doctrinal standards, and um, you can read about some of that on page 33. I'm going to stop and interrupt this because she's going to have to go, but Claire is here, and I know she loves to be put on the spot, but Claire is our church administrator. If you have not met her, please do get to know her. Um, As I noted earlier, any questions you have, um, any, if if you'll serve in the nursery, if you would like to serve in other capacities with children, Claire will help do background checks. Um, If they're giving questions, she can run interference between our bookkeeper and, and any families or individuals in the church. If there are ministry needs or opportunities to serve, Claire, um, can be a good point person to help answer questions. Claire's primary work is to keep me sane, focused, and to, <laughs> and to focused. Claire knows I have ADHD worse than anyone, and, and her job is to communicate, and she does a great job with that. She is getting Planning Center up and going. Claire does our bulletins every week. She sends out helpful emails. I mean, she really administrates everything. So I just wanted you guys to be able to meet her in person if you have not. So, and Claire got us food today, right? Okay. Awesome. That was it. Bye. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to get, I'm going to hear about this later probably. Um, All right. Let's look at distinctions very quickly on page 34. We are coming to the end here. Um, Actually, I am going to jump down to F, 34F, Reformed Theology, E and F. Um, When we talk about the Reformed faith, we are generally speaking in a narrow sense about what we call the doctrines of grace— Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. We, we are very, very, very committed to the narrow essentials of reform faith. Um, that should be already evident to you all in the teaching and preaching in a broader sense, we are committed to confessionalism, and that means even things like how we worship. You know, our worship can be weird to a lot of people. Um, I want to say a couple things about reform worship very briefly. And I, I'm not speaking on behalf of the elders because they may not agree with this. I'm speaking based on my own office and, and convictions. I do not believe that Church Creek worships the right way and everybody else worships the wrong way. I need to say that, and you need to hear that. There are Reformed churches that think they worship the right way and everybody else worships the wrong way. I want to also say this. There are cultural preferences about the worship we do that are bound to things like hymnody that we sing. Um, we tend to have a, a preferential style of worship. Again, you're never going to hear me say we do it right 
and the church that has the praise band and only sings really trite praise songs does it wrong. Our, our <laughs> that was kind of a backhanded, <laughs> or that was kind of a passive-aggressive uh, insult. No, but my point is, we don't believe that just because we have a, a certain style that we adhere to in this church, that that makes it more biblical than others. Um, now, having said that, we do believe that we can only do in worship what God has prescribed. That's called the regulative principle of worship. So one of the reasons why we don't have um, miming during the worship service is because we don't see that in the Bible. You may love mimes. Mimes have always scared me, but there are churches that have mimes. There are churches with liturgical dance. We don't do liturgical dance for many reasons, modesty being one of them, but, <laughs> but um, one of the big reasons why we don't do liturgical dance is because um, we don't see that as um, either an implicit or explicit element of worship in Scripture. We believe God wants to be worshipped in a certain way, and that we can't just do whatever we want to do. So you'll notice in this church, we have everything from a call to worship to a reading of the law, confession of sin, assurance of pardon. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We put the preaching of the word central. We have the reading of the word. We have confessions of faith. Um, we have giving. Um, we... Um, have the Lord's Supper and baptism, and we have benedictions. Those are sort of the big elements that we see fleshed out in Scripture. And so being reformed means more than just the doctrines of grace and salvation. It really does encompass everything we do, including the ministries in the church, um, officers in the church. All of those things are part of what we mean when we say that we are committed to the Reformed faith, and they are built on the authority of Scripture and the sovereignty of God. Those are the two kind of principles. If it's not in Scripture, if God has not sovereignly ordained it, and if it's not centered on God's sovereignty and the authority of Scripture, then we don't want to just do it because it feels good, because that's the only other alternative. Um, Let's talk about baptism very briefly. I've already noted that we are a church that is committed to covenantal baptism. That means that we stand in that long line of uh, church history in which um, the church has recognized that the visible church is everyone who professes faith in Christ and their, their children— we get those from many places in Scripture. I'm not going to go into this in great depth because we are coming to the end here, but um, the Abrahamic covenant, God gave Abraham promises, and then he told him to give the sign of the covenant to everyone in his household. I, I prefer to say that we are household Baptist rather than infant Baptist. I think that's more consistent with Scripture on the whole. I'm an oiko-Baptist, a household Baptist, rather, rather than a pedo-Baptist. And some people will say, well, where do you see an infant baptized in Scripture? I don't. Where do you see households baptized? All through the book of Acts. Household of Abraham, all the households in the book of Acts. We are household Baptist. We are covenantal in that view. 
We do not believe that the sign of baptism saves anyone. This is hugely important. We believe that that is God marking off his people for his visible church. And we do believe that God has given the children of believers promises. We believe that that statement, I will be a God to you and your descendants after you, is not just sequestered to Abraham, but that as we are grafted in to the same people of God, right? If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's. That it's the same promises, it's the same gospel, and it's the same visible church that we are brought in that the mark of the sign goes on our descendants because we believe God has given them promises. Now, they have to repent and believe. And kids, this is important to hear. Your parents can't believe you into heaven. We can trust God's promises. We can trust God for those. We can pray fervently. We can raise our children in the ministry of the word, in the local church, under the means of grace. But at the end of the day, my sons must repent and believe for themselves just like I had to. So when we say that the children of believers have special promises, those promises are still, um, they are still conditioned on each one of those children owning Christ for themselves, embracing Christ for themselves. And in that sense, we can say that they, they need to improve on their baptism. That's a, a phrase that's not in the Bible, but it's the idea of if Christ has put his name on you, why would you not embrace him savingly, if he has promised to nurture you. And when we talk about the distinctives of the Reformed faith with regard to our children, the best way I can, I can encourage you to think of it is, is the idea of being nurtured, being nurtured in the church. What makes my children different than the Muslim or secular atheist, Mormon, what makes my children different than those children? God has put them in the visible church to be nurtured under the preaching of the gospel, under the ministry of the word, in the context of the people of God. And, and that's the best place for them to be. When I, when I left the Christian home I was in and was in so much darkness for so many years, I knew that I needed to be in the local church because I knew the things that I'm telling you now. My heart wanted the world, but I knew where I needed to be was under the ministry of the word. And, and that's the way you should think about that covenantal approach is that principle of nurturing. Now, let me say this. We have in this church quite a number of families that do not yet, I'll say, or maybe ever, see these things. We want you to be convinced by Scripture. Um, we do not limit church membership to just those families that will submit to baptizing their children. We understand these are tough issues. Some of my best friends in the world are believers, Baptists, pastors. Um, we've just decided not to talk about it anymore. It's the best way to keep that friendship flourishing. But while we want everyone at Church Creek to study these things and to grow in their understanding of them, we do not require that individuals be covenantal in their understanding of baptism to be a member of this church. We want, we want people to be members of this church because they believe in Christ. 
And so in that sense, uh, maybe one way I could also help people in the Baptist church, when you make a profession of faith and are baptized, you're automatically brought to the table. In the Presbyterian church, if you grew up in a Christian home, as we've already said, you're part of the visible church. When you make a profession of faith, you are brought to the table. So communing membership for the Reformed tends to function the way believers' baptism does for the Baptist. We see baptism in the Lord's Supper as distinct signs. Baptism is the sign of initiation into the visible church. The Lord's Supper is confirmation of your profession of faith in Christ and what he's done for you. So we we don't see them as the same thing. We see them as similar and yet distinct signs in the church. So that's a lot. We've covered a lot. Questions that you all have? Yes. Yeah, so again, these are they're two different signs. They serve two different purposes. They're not the same thing. So all my Baptist friends make them one and the same, two of the same sign. They're different signs. Baptism is the sign that God has marked you off to be part of the visible church. The Lord's Supper is for those who have professed faith in Christ, who are, are it's, it's cover, covenant confirmation is the best way I can say this. Um, you had this distinction in Israel. I mean, the, the infants didn't eat the meat of the Passover because they would have choked on it. So there, there was a distinction even in Old Covenant Israel. Circumcision was the sign that you were marked off as the people of God. The infants got that as well as the adults in the home. But not everybody partook of the, the Passover. There was a representative partaking of the Passover, where if there were infants in the home, and by the way, the PCA has written a very lengthy paper on what they call pedo-communion, because there are some, I hesitate to call them reformed, there are some in the broader reformed church that want to argue for giving the Lord's Supper to their infants, and so they dip the bread and put the soggy bread in their baby's mouth. We don't do that because historically the church has never practiced that, And also, again, I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, let a person examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink the wine. So you have a very clear call to self-examination. How does an infant examine whether they're in the faith? So there is a distinction between, just as there was with circumcision and Passover, between baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I know it, it maybe feels artificial, But as you look at all the biblical data, it becomes very clear that these are two very distinct signs. That's a good question, though. Anything else? I mean, this is a lot, y'all. I'm sorry for... Um, I would just encourage you all to read through the remainder of this. You'll notice on page 38, 39, and 40 that we really flesh out there... um, some of the essential aspects of Reformed theology and our views on baptism. 
Oh, let me just say this. Um, this is just as an aside. If, if you are convicted of a believer's Baptist-only view, again, we've said we don't exclude people from membership because of that, there is some debate in the PCA because there have been, and we have had them here, I had them in my previous congregation that I pastored, um, believers, Baptist only, that really want their kids to be immersed when they make a profession of faith because immersion is such a big issue in the Baptist world. It's got to be full dunking or else it's not a baptism. Um, do what? Right, so, so let me say this. Um, if you were to ask me about the mode of baptism, I believe the biblical mode would be something like this. They walked into the water and it was poured over them. They were not dunked. There is zero biblical teaching that anybody was ever dunked. The only thing it says is he went into the water and came out. Well, if you're at the beach and your kid goes down and you're like, hey, my kid went in the water and came out, you don't mean they were immersed. You're just saying they went down into the water. And the idea of pouring or sprinkling carries with it the idea of the Holy Spirit being outpoured, which is what baptism is pointing to, regeneration. So our practice here at Church Creek is going to be, and the majority of Presbyterians, is to sprinkle or pour in a baptism. There are some Presbyterians, some of my good friends are fine with immer immersions, and so they'll you know, they'll go do a service at a pool or at the ocean. We probably would not do that. And it's not because we don't want to respect that there are different opinions, but we believe that sprinkling and pouring is suitable for a baptism. And so just to put that out there, it's not that there's not an argument to be made for more water, because I tend to think I'd like more water than what we tend to have. But... Um, you know, it's just a, it's, a, it's a subject that is oftentimes very fruitless because the main point of baptism is not the mode. It, it's what it symbolizes. So if I ever get caught up in arguing about the mode, I'm probably missing out on something. Um, is what? Yes, that's right. It's important. That's a great point, Matt. It's, while the Bible doesn't explicitly say this, it does teach that the sign is something that generally is, is being witnessed to by the body of believers. Um, now, if you look in the book of Acts, let me just say this, and we're coming to the very end here. If you look in the book of Acts, one of the dangers, people go to the book of Acts and they're like, well, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? I mean, he's over here getting baptized by Philip over in a big body of water. The book of Acts is a transitional period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Anybody should be able to read the book of Acts and see these things are not normative. They are provisional. As the New Testament goes on and church government is established and the local churches are established, you sort of see a more... Um, conventional practice taking place in churches. And that's why, to Matt's point, I think we would say 
the sacraments have been given to the local church. We're not out here without local churches like the apostles were in the early chapters of Acts, preaching the gospel for the first time to the nations. We're not in that provisional period. We have established churches. And so generally, we're going to say a valid baptism ought to take place in the context of a local church witnessing that, taking part in that, because, again, what does baptism say? It says, this person belongs to this church or to the visible church. And so those members are saying, we are going to receive this person because we're witnessing that God is setting them apart to be part of the church. So that might be, I might have opened up more of a Pandora's box, but... Any questions or comments as we come to an end of this? Okay, it is noon. There is food. You can either stay or you can grab it and go. Um, we, I'm going to hand these out. If you all would take time to fill these out and bring them with you. I think we've already talked about several of y'all meeting with elders tomorrow for examinations during Sunday school hours, so if you are able to do that, that would be great. And then I know there's a couple families that are going to have to finish up. And then what I think my hope would be is to meet with them in the next week or two, and then um, maybe publicly receive everybody, if we could, together, which would be really great. So I'm going to pass these out. Y'all just hand those out. Um, I think one per person. Is that right? Let me look at that. Oh, children. No, you're good. So we, you could do, I guess you could do one per family. All right. Well, those are going around. Let me close us in prayer. And then thank you for blocking off a Saturday morning. I know it's not fun and but thank you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. We thank you for this local church. We ask that you would preserve it. We thank you for these men and women and boys and girls and their desire to be a part of your body visible. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gifts that you've given them. We thank you for their desire to live godly lives and to walk in accord with the gospel. And so we do pray that you would pour out your blessing on them. We pray that you would guide and direct them. If you are to bring them into membership in this church, would you help us to love them and welcome them and care for them and support them? We pray that we would mutually seek to be a blessing and that you would work through us for the advancement of your kingdom. And so would you go before us in the remainder of this process? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.